Hello, I'm David McGowan, and welcome to Untold Stories. This episode was recorded live on stage at the Florida Theater in downtown Jacksonville on November 27, 2021. And this audio series is a production of WJCT Public Media and the Florida Theater. Untold Stories at the Florida Theater is made possible in part by generous support from the Wolfberg family. Every time I come here, right? Every time I come here, I just start noticing the detail and you just start having this feeling, I do, about the magic of this place. And, and um, it, it feels secret. It really is probably one of the most storied buildings in Jacksonville, right? I mean, it's holding a lot of stories and there have been a lot of amazing people and musicians and dancers on this stage. And I want to acknowledge and for us to just take a moment to think about this building and all of downtown. I mean, we sit on the territory, Timaqua territory. And um, I'm just thinking about that and what that means because we obviously didn't make a deal or have a treaty with the Timaqua. You know, we just got to, to take the land. And I always think it's good to acknowledge that. And that leads us into our next storyteller. Very wonderful person that I really got to know through the, the process. I really got to know a lot about her life. Her name is Angela Tenbrook, and she's the chief executive. She's the chief executive officer at Worldwide Aquaponics. Now, before we hear from her, we're going to hear from Meredith. So Meredith is going to do a couple of songs, her ebb and flow interpretation for the evening. So let's give a hand to Meredith. Thank you. So a minute ago, I was standing backstage with um, a sock on my hand because it's chilly. <laughs> and this hand, when you're playing guitar, is like sacred, and the bones get cold, and then it gets really hard to work. So I was just thinking how ridiculous that looked with this like one sock on my hand. So, so um, Barbara had asked me to pick two songs that were my portion of storytelling. Um, I'm in a new chapter of my life. Uh, than I was before these so when I wrote these songs, but um, they're important songs. So um, this one is about the conflict of your own mind, and I don't think it needs anything any more <laughs> explanation. I've died so many times in my mind. Can't seem to help myself I'm addicted to these thoughts and, and the world around me 
all feels like poison so i build up my walls real tall then i just feel frozen never did me never did me never did me any good cause i'm over thinking everything I'm over thinking everything. I get lost. I'm so distracted and I can't stop moving, but I I finish nothing. And my mind just circles. I can't sleep. And they say that it's not right But the herbs help me sleep at night They never did me, never did me Never did me any good Cause I'm over Thinking Everything And I'm over Everything I forget how to breathe I forget how to be So I learn to let it go I give nothing but love To what I don't control and I'm over thinking everything. Thank you. Thank you. Um, this is a song about the biggest change in my life, um, in my adult life, aside from having a child. Um, who I was and I let you and I wore it all around to protect you and I want to say I love and respect you but never again will I lose myself in the making I was all yours for the taking and I know it's all so heartbreaking never again I was too electric for you you let the darkness hold you I did my best to warn you Over and over Everything just feels so bitter I'm sorry for that winter I did my best to warn you Over and over And the one 
one that we made, she is precious. Every time I see her, I am breathless. And I hope that she learns from my messes. So never again will I lose myself in the making. I was all yours for the taking. And I know it's all so heartbreaking. Never again. I was too electric for you. You let the darkness hold you. I did my best to warn you over and over. And the old me running naked in the streets in a bare feet, laughing at the moon like I'm crazy. I'm not crazy anymore. Said you love me, but you don't know a thing about my bare feet. Spent all your time trying to change me. I was too electric for you. You let the darkness hold you. I did my best to warn you over and over. Everything just feels so bitter. I'm sorry for that winter. I did my best to warn you over and over. Thank you. Meredith, thank you. I was overthinking. I think we can relate to that. Or, or not thinking. Okay. Um, I wasn't thinking when I went right to Angela Tenbrook. But She's up next, and um, she is the Chief Executive Officer at Worldwide Aquaponics and co-founder of the Foodery Farmer Farms, and she's going to weave a story about her Cherokee roots and how she moves through the world as her modern-day farm her. Give us... Give us a big hand. Give her a big hand. <laughs> Angela, there you are. Hello. I was born in Baptist Hospital just across the St. John's River. The same river that Native Americans for centuries have lived next to. I always think that's ironic. For four generations we've lived on this river. And now I farm on this river. See, my story starts with a story before the story. When I was growing up, my Aunt Rusty, she would call and tell me stories and weave stories that kind of like parables. And she would always leave me with something. She was the last person in that generation alive, and I think she wanted to impart upon me kind of important things. So one day she told me the story that she thought I was the family's white buffalo. White buffalo? Well, Aunt Rusty, you know I was born in May. I'm just a Taurus, a bull, a bull in a china shop, you know. No, no, you are a white buffalo, and you need to live your purpose. And that purpose is to have harmony and balance and a variety of other things for our family. 
you are to bring those things, harmony, balance, abundance, and hope. So I embodied that idea for my whole life, trying to do what is right, what is hopeful, to bring balance to everything around me. My story begins in 2018, Hansville, Washington, a thousand miles from home. We've just built our 26th farm, and we're at our closing kind of farm family meal, and like normal, it's a local food kind of gourmand kind of thing, and I eat a shrimp, and the next thing I remember, I'm riding in the back of an ambulance. My throat closes. I look over, and my vital signs are dropping, and I know I am dying. I know, my heart is beating, and it's as though the sounds of my native ancestral drums are beating in my heart, and my heartbeats are going away. And I can see my great-grandfather who's taught me this new way of farming, and my grandmother who says, never say no, never be afraid. Yet, I'm afraid. And I beg the universe, please, Give me one more chance, one more chance to live out my life's path, white buffalo. The next 18 months, I am fully, fully changed, and I am aware of the fact that nothing can ever be the same again. I evolve out of relationships. By day, I'm working in Jacksonville's food insecurity fight, I've just built the latest farm idea. Guidewell says, hey, your idea is the next solution for food insecurity. Produce vending machines in food deserts. We know that we can bring food to the masses. We've done it. Yet at night, I'm having my own insecurity challenges. Who am I? Am I enough? Should I be the CEO of this company? Am I a leader? What's happening? Who am I? Am I lovable? Am I loving? All this time, I've been, White Buffalo has been working on the outside world, only to realize that the ancestors are speaking to me. The White Buffalo needs to look at her. So this whole time, I'm spending in this kind of ebb and flow of, who am I? What am I? and I'm working in Jacksonville's food insecurity fight, and I recognize that I'm the one that's insecure. I'm the one that's, that needs the change. So for, and during this time, I'm kind of evolving out of different relationships and into new things, and all of a sudden, it occurs to me, I need to be my own white buffalo. I need to give hope and balance to me. Well, at the same time, we are, have moved upriver 20, 20 miles to East Palatka, and it's, we're building this newest farm, and Darnell Smith calls and says, hey, Angela, it's March 2020 to give you an idea about where I, this is at. The food bank is without produce. Do you think you can help them? For Darnell Smith, I'll do anything, and I said, of course, Darnell, what do you need? He said, I have $10,000, can you make, I need four weeks worth of food. Okay. So we go about getting that produce, small and large farms, big farms, brown and black, 
minority farms, all sorts of farms all over. We aggregate the produce into our pack house, and we realize it's not a four-week pivot, it's an 18-month pivot. And for 18 months, we move, in that time frame, two million pounds of produce directly into the hands of people who needed it most. People who didn't think they needed it. So here I was, looking at my own insecurities, recognizing that I had done all these things for the world, going through my own personal changes, and I was starting to get validation. I was starting to see that the worth that I was questioning and all the things that I had had going on, there was a reason. So as I continued my journey, what I also recognized was that I had self-worth. While I came across as confident and aware and so this kind of thing, I was seeking something deeper. And it was during this time that I, since I had evolved into self-love, that I was, had the ability to accept someone else's love. And for the first time in my life, I was able to receive personal love. Love like I had never received. The way in which I walked on the ground, the air in which I, bre- I was breathing, the water I worked in, everything, it was elemental to me. A love like I had never felt before. I knew that I was changed. I knew that I had this, you know, these balances in my life. I knew that I had done the right thing for my career. I was a farmer. I could finally see and feel because the white buffalo had harmony, hope, abundance, and all of the things in her life that she had given the world finally had come and sat on my shoulders. Thank you. Angela is doing incredible work um, with food distribution, and um, I I advise that you go and uh, read more about her. Um, We're moving on to Willie Evans, Jr. Woo! So Willie is a beat maker, and he's a hip-hop artist. He's just multi-talented. Um, he's actually been at, uh, in the music scene in Jacksonville for like over 25 years. And so he's had a great career. He's toured the world with his hip-hop group, Asimov. And he's, as a creative force, Willie's recent focus has channeled his talent to progress societal conversations with hopes of broadening his projects to impact larger audience. He just received a um, community foundation uh, grant from uh, Northeast Florida for one of his projects. So I want you to welcome Willie, fabulous person. Give him a big hand. How y'all doing? Y'all good? Good, because I am super nervous. (laughs) So, it's 2011, and I have just released a solo album on a record label out of New York. 
and it is a critical success. Now, for those of you who don't know what a critical success is, <laughs> the next time you get your JEA bill, call the number on the back and tell them you'll be paying with your critical success card. <laughs> well, the upside to critical success is that you get to do cool shows, and that's what landed me on a festival opening for one of the greatest hip-hop artists of all time, Pharrell Monch. Now, for those of you who don't know who Pharrell Monch is, think of the greatest rapper that you can think of lyrically or that you've seen on TV. Pharrell Monch is in their top five. And I've been a fan of Pharrell Monch since I was a kid, so I am incredibly nervous, as always. And my label owner knows this about me and also knows that I have a tendency in situations where I should be playing it cool to kind of shit the bed. And so he shows up <laughs> to the festival to make sure that I don't do that. I get to the festival, everything is great, I'm backstage. He comes up, he says, okay, I'm gonna introduce you to Fairmont so we can get this out of the way. And he takes me over to him, and of course he's super cool and this is just something he does every day. And he's like, yo, Pharaoh, I want to introduce you to Willie Evans Jr. And before he can say Jr., Pharaoh goes, oh, I've heard your album, oh, it's so good. And the label owner looks at me and says, it kind of with his eyes, don't, don't. <laughs> and I look at him like, it's been an honor. Oh, I've been listening to you since I was a little kid. And I wish I would have brought my records. You can sign it. I've got a lot of beats, and I would love for you to just listen to it, whatever. And Pharaoh kind of responds like, all right, I'm going to go over here and just <laughs> hang out. And, but the show went great. The gig went great. I went on stage. I did what I do. It was a lot of fun. It was awesome. After the show, the label owner wants to smooth things over because he really wants this relationship to happen, and he sets up this thing for us to go have dinner together. We're standing around Pharaoh's car, and the label owner is basically like, you know, why don't you ride with him? Ride with him to, you know, to the restaurant. And I'm like, no, stop doing that to me. I don't want to do that. I feel weird already. And he opens the door to the back seat of the car while everyone is talking, and he's like, yeah, 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 and just pushes me into the back seat of the car. So I'm in the car, I'm in the back seat, Pharaoh Monch is driving, another legendary artist is in the passenger seat, and Pharaoh starts playing this project that he's working on. And it is the most amazing thing that I have ever heard. He, it's a concept for an album, and he has, because he's him, he's gotten instrumentals from Radiohead, and he's writing lyrics over this. And they're just talking about it like it's nothing. Like, oh, okay, I, you know, I'm thinking maybe I'll change this and move this around. And I'm in the back just trying to be as inconspicuous <laughs> as possible, because I feel like if they see me back there, they'll pull over and just like kick me out of the car. So he's, they're talking to each other, and then he looks in the rearview mirror. And he says, what do you think? And I want to say, oh, that's amazing. Oh, I, you know, I have some instrumentals that I think will fit really well for this project. Oh, I think you should have some drops right here. 
But what I actually do is turn my head and look behind me to see who he is talking to. And you know, you know how you like, you're, you're doing something and you're halfway through it and now you have to commit. When I was here, I had to just keep turning and hope that there was someone hanging on the outside of the car like, no, roll the window down, he's talking to me. But there wasn't. Somehow I made it through that and when I got back, I called uh, my best friend Peyton and we laughed about it like we always do because I always do stuff like that. And he said the same thing that he always says, which is, yo, you got to stop doing that, man. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I do have to stop doing that. Like, like why, why am I like that? Why do I not see myself the way that other people see me? And I've always been like that. Like, when I, w- when I was six... My mom taught me to swim. Now, just a quick side note, my mom is here, and she, <laughs> she swears that this did not happen. So I feel like this is the last time I'm going to be able to tell this story, because if I tell it one more time, she's going to emancipate herself from me. When I was six, someone may or may not have taught me to swim. Now, I was standing at the edge of the pool. It was a huge pool. Everything is big when you're little. So this huge pool, I'm standing at the edge, and my mom is standing next to me, and her hand is on my shoulder. And she says, okay, we're going to learn to swim today. Well, you are an excellent swimmer. We're not learning to swim today. You already know how to swim. You're great at swimming, and I suck at everything. So I don't know what you're talking. And she pushed me into the pool. And I'm in the pool, I'm flailing, I'm freaking out and trying to, you know, I'm having like an existential crisis at six. And she gets in the pool, at the center of the pool, and she puts her arms out, and she says, okay, swim to me. Well, I don't have any choice, so I start dog pedaling, and I'm crying, oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, why you pushed me in the pool? And I get to her fingertips, and I feel like I could just reach them, but I can't, and I keep going. And finally, I get her arms, and I wrap my arms around her neck, and I'm crying, and, oh, you tried to kill me. Why did you do that? And while I'm crying, she turns me around, and she points to the other side of the pool and says, look, look what you did. And I look, and I have swam the entire length of the pool because when I was swimming to her, She was on her toes, backing up (laughs) as I was swimming. And that stuck with me. If I could focus on something or someone that was great and just dog pedal my way toward that and hammer away at it, I could do anything. And I carried that all the way into a music career where I tricked three of the illest hip-hop artists in the city into being in a group with me called Asimov. It was uh, Buddy, who is, the, to this day, the living and breathing embodiment of hip-hop culture. There was Joe, who also, to this day, is one of the most lyrically dense uh, rappers, like lyricists that I've ever worked with. And there was the spearhead of the entire group, which was Peyton Locke. He's what we call a triple threat in hip-hop because he was a genius at, a D- as DJing, at DJing. He was a genius lyricist, 
and he was a genius producer. So we were just kind of just kind of along for the ride while he wowed people. And I don't know if you've ever worked with someone who is uh, really good at talking trash, but then also extremely good at backing it up and exactly as good as they say they are, but it's incredibly intimidating. So I was glad that he had allowed me to be on the team. It was great. Asimov toured the world. We sold records. We sold for the young people in the audience. There was a time where you could walk into a building and touch MP3s. And you could pick it up and give people green pieces of paper for it and then take it away and hold it in your hands. We sold a lot of touchable MP3s, and it was fantastic. Until the estate of Isaac Asimov sent us a cease and desist saying that we were trying to build the fame of our group off of what he had written, to which we responded, well, that's stupid. We're a hip-hop group that makes music, and we don't even know who Isaac Asimov is. I don't even read. What are you talking about? To which they responded, well, that's weird, because we have a copy of this interview where Willie Evans Jr. said, yeah, that's exactly where we got the name from. And me and Peyton read Isaac Asimov all the time, and we're trying to be the Isaac Asimov of hip-hop music. Sorry. <laughs> so we changed the name to the ABs, and we made a little bit of music, but changing the name kind of took the wind out of our sails. Uh, two of us, uh, Joe and Buddy, went on to do other things, but Peyton and me continued to make music. I was a solo artist, he was a solo artist. We made music together, and uh, we would always talk about you know, uh, theories around hip-hop music and culture and uh, make music and talk about stories on the road. Um, he would talk about going on the road and being told by cats that we had grown up listening to that he was a genius, and he would respond, yeah, I am. And I would tell him stories like the one I told you at the beginning, which is what I always did, and he would always say, man, you got to stop that. You know what I mean? Uh, eventually, those, those uh, conversations went from talking about hip-hop theory to talking about decisions we made as parents with our kids and uh, decisions in our lives about relationships and stuff like that. And it made us, we became tighter, and eventually, he became my best friend. And all of our, all of our conversations were like that until we reached a point where we had one of our last conversations where he told me pretty bluntly that he had stage four inoperable cancer. After that, most of our conversations were about taking stock in what we had done as artists. And just, you know, a lot of apologies for things that neither one of us cared about. And um, him saying, you know, that we did it. You know, not a lot of people get to say that they were, when they were a kid, they said, I want to do this thing. And then they grew up and they did it. And he'd be like, yo, we did it. And I'd be like, really? You kind of did it. And I was just kind of in the passenger seat following along. And when I said that to him, he said one last time, 
Willie, you got to stop that. Eventually, he lost his battle with cancer, and we threw this huge memorial event for him at Cork Arts District. It was amazing. It felt like the whole city was there. Uh, artists from all over the world, international artists, artists that we had grown up listening to showed up. People that I didn't even know knew who we were came to this event. His closest friends were there, his family was there, and it just felt so good, and I felt so full, but it also felt like I didn't, I just, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to do anything. I felt like I couldn't move. There was no longer a light for me to dog pedal to. And I went into my own space to be by myself because it was, it was too much. And I was sitting in there by myself thinking about how I was going to do anything from now on. And the door to my studio opened, and my mom walked in. And she sat next to me, and she put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, you know what? I'm going to tell you something that I don't think I've ever told you. Whenever I saw Peyton, he would always come up to me and go on and on about how he thought you were a genius. And for the first time in my life, I believed it. You know, I spent so much time focusing on these bright lights and swimming toward them that I never stopped to think, you know, maybe I'm a bright light. And maybe there are people out there that are swimming towards me. Thank you. <laughs> Time for our last storyteller, Anna Jacobson. Woo, right? She's a writer, she's a poet, she's an educator, an award-winning educator. I mean, she's been in the classroom for 27 years. Yeah. She's a coach for the Florida Louder Than Bomb organization and a member of Women Writing for a Change. And I really give, want you to give a warm welcome to Anna, like you've been doing all night, really embracing our storytellers. So here is Anna Jacobson. Good evening. Before I begin, I just want to add six more lights to Kedger's 1,108 lights, and that would be Barbara Colicello and the other five storytellers that we've worked with. They have been amazing. In 2017, Hurricane Irma and the resulting flood folded up the first floor of our house and ate it like a New Yorker eats a slice of pizza. In all of our flood preparation, we hadn't given a lot of thought to our outdoor koi pond because fish, water, 
So when our living room became our new indoor swimming pool, the fish expanded their territory from the pond to the whole backyard, and they were having a fantastic time. It was like fish Disneyland. When the time came for us to evacuate, we put two small children and two large dogs into a canoe. And when we opened the back gate to get the boat out, our fish posse went with us. Now, Hurricane Irma confirmed that my husband and I have two very different styles of crisis response. <laughs> He stood at the bow of the boat in boots and chest-high waders and a slicker and a hat. And I stood at the stern of the boat, barefoot, in running shorts, with a baby squirrel nestled in a winter hat, safety pinned to my tank top. <laughs> he was essentially wearing a full-body condom because he was worried about MRSA and other waterborne diseases. And if we're going to go with that metaphor, I was having unprotected sex with the St. John's and some sewage. <laughs> our destination was our neighbor's house, where their deck turned dock and hill turned to island, provided our dogs who were nearing psychic disintegration from loss of access to all familiar tree trunks a place to pee. After 15 minutes at the neighbors, I realized that my husband was nearing psychic disintegration. So with apologies, we grabbed our paddles and headed to check out flooded San Marco, which I like to refer to as Nuevo Venice. <laughs> True Venetian style, our canoe quickly became a sort of water taxi, and we shuttled still drunk women tottering in high heels carrying poodles shell-shocked business owners, and even a stranded fish and wildlife officer to whatever for them passed for high ground. While I don't enjoy catastrophe, you could say it's my milieu. That does not make me an action hero striding through smoke, problem-solving. But rather, disasters confirm my expectations. And my disaster brain <laughs> looked at office furniture floating in store windows and people waiting with duffel bags on their heads and said, yes, this is what we do now. On the way back to the neighbors, we saw our fish one last time. Like a herd of aqua mustangs, they paced us down the street until we got to the intersection of Belmont and LaSalle, where we went left, and they, with a saucy flip of the fin, went right to the river. And part of me wanted to say, right when you get work. <laughs> And part of me wanted to say, viva la pescatarian revolucion. <laughs> And part of me wanted to say, take me with you. Because I knew how hard the next weeks were going to be. We ripped out walls. We ripped up floors, we ripped up tile, we set up fans and generators. And while we pretended that we were on extreme makeover home edition, the reality was FEMA. And so I went to the nearby church where the FEMA trailers were parked 
to find out what exactly constituted aid for flood victims. And I stood in line with people who couldn't read well enough to decipher the forms they'd been handed, with people who were realizing they didn't have flood insurance, with people crying into burner phones down to their last minute. So I stepped out of line, and I read some forms for some people, and I let somebody use my phone, and I walked home empty-handed and crying. But I walked in the front door smiling because that's what parents do. And at night, I told our children stories of our koi fish and how they would love the river and grow to be giant gold and silver whales. <laughs> our house was unlivable, so I called my parents very nice people who pretended that they were delighted to have us come live with them which made two senior citizens, two Gen Xers, two kids, two snakes, now four dogs, but no baby squirrel because of all of us, the little bastard was thriving and he had moved on. <laughs> My boss came down from the big office to offer condolences. And when I told him that we were fine, he favored me with a look of totally undeserved admiration. Wow, he said, you're so strong. And this did not help my feeling of alienation. Sir, I wanted to say, we are living rent-free. We have a reliable contractor. Nobody died. And the look on your face is making me feel like some combination of fraud and freak. Houses can be fixed. But for my growing sense of exile and wrongness, there is not enough caulk at Home Depot for that. And so my body became this kind of clenched fist, trying to respond appropriately, but also trying to hold in my truth, which was that we were fine. But I was grieving those fish. And I was grieving my fish because I was grieving the world before the flood, when the river stayed in its banks and people in precarious situations had not yet been tipped into disaster. But that's not something you can talk about in the three minutes between classes in the teacher's lounge, and it's not something you want to talk about. And also, we were not fine. Our children were not fine. The big one got very quiet, polite, angry, quiet. And the little one developed a series of ticks and twitches, and the school made me test her for Tourette's. But back at home, we were getting in a groove with my parents and their dogs, the gargoyle and the jackal. The gargoyle was a wrecking ball of pure love, otherwise known as Pitbull. And the jackal was beautiful and loving, but also Mother Nature's killing machine, a velociraptor in a dog suit. The jackal, a.k.a. Sophie, once brought me a possum so large I thought she'd murdered an NFL mascot.
A few nights into our stay, I woke up in my childhood bedroom thinking that my husband had discovered an alarming new way to snore. But the sound wasn't in our room. So I did the horror movie victim's creep down the hall and opened the door to my mother's bedroom to see, standing on the bed, crouching over my mother, her mouth inches from my mother's throat, honest-to-God moonlight gleaming off her honest-to-God teeth, Sophie, and a low, rippling snarl pouring out of her. And my mother was sleeping through this, because when my mother sleeps, my mother sleeps enchanted spinning wheel sleep, sleep of a thousand years sleep, and also my mother takes her hearing aids out. <laughs> so I stepped closer, and the snarling got louder. And I said, go lie down. And impossibly, more teeth appeared. So I went for the one thing the jackal feared, the plant mister, a plastic spray bottle that my mother uses to revive ferns and get dogs off couches. But I couldn't find it. So I went back down the hall, opened the door, and did my very best to imitate the sound that a plant mister makes. <laughs> Insanely, this worked. Insanely, I went back to bed. Insanely, in the morning, when I told my mother, she said, oh, Sophie, and patted the dog. <laughs> we stealth took the dog to the vet, where the vet said things like developing condition and expect increasingly erratic behavior. And when I told my mother, she said, oh, Anna Kate because nobody likes the brain tumor fairy. And nothing changed. Sophie continued to sleep with my mother, and every two or three nights, I would get up and tiptoe down the hall and imitate a plant mister. Because this is what we do now. And for seven months, this is what we did. We worked at our jobs. We worked on fixing our house. We worked on fixing our children. We sat up nights with the dying dog. We watched my parents struggle with growing older and with each other. This is what we do now. A little while after we moved back home, my mother put Sophie down. She was a good dog. And our house, even if it had let the flood in, is our good home. It is an old and funky house. It has old and funky windows. And in the storm, the largest and funkiest of the windows got cracked. But we had just the thing to fix it. On eBay, even before we even had this house, my husband had purchased a stained glass window from a decommissioned church in his home state in Delaware. After it was installed, our eight-year-old took one look at it and said, what? We do God now? <laughs> and stomped off to her room. It is 150 years old. It is a stupid, stupid thing 
to put in a house that sits in the path of flood and hurricane. It is also very beautiful. It has a pelican on it, and the text on it is from Psalms, and it reads, I am the pelican in the wilderness. I am the desert owl in the ruins. It is the voice of purest exile, the cry of purest loneliness. And I can relate. And sometimes, I'm sure, so can you. I still think about the people we gave rides to in our canoe. I think about the people crying in line at the FEMA trailers. Even though we have new ones, I miss our fish. I miss Sophie. For the last two years, people have talked about a new normal, as though there ever was a normal. But life's a tidal cycle of crisis and crisis response. And every new change brings with it attendant humiliations and resignations to losses we will never regain. We stand at the bow and the stern of a small boat filled with our rarest treasures and our best selves, trying to hold it steady. We move through murky water, hoping for firm strides, heading for safe harbor. We balance the peril with a reckless commitment to beauty. And we balance our loneliness by holding tight to what and who we love. This is what we do now. This is what we do always. Anna, Anna, I want to say that I will never, where are you? She left. But every time I think I use my, my, my plant mister, I'm going to think of Anna. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, before we have Meredith Mason close out the evening, um, I was I was reading uh, some Joseph Campbell a couple of weeks ago, and I wrote down one of the things that he talks about. And he says the job of the storyteller is to impart some wisdom about the human experience, what it means to be alive. And I hope that tonight that there's been some wisdom that flowed into your hearts, hearts and, and spoke to you and that you were touched by the words and the images, these stories were um, given to you tonight. So thank you for being here and, and listening. So here's Meredith singing Wild Heart. Do I know my word? Do I know my soul? 
Am I running free? Nobody seems to know what we came here for. What's it all mean? We all stuck burning down our dreams. I wish I had a wild heart. Well, I wish I had a wild heart. I'd set fire to the Sky Sky Why And I got no plans on where to be just drawing squares Somebody cut me free And I'm just so scared From all the lies They're telling me What should I believe? I wish I had a wild heart Well, I wish I had a wild heart I'd set fire to the Sky Sky Why Well it all comes down to this Light may bend and twist but it's still light It's still light Set fire to the sky 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 I'll set fire to the sky Sky Why? To the sky Thank you. Storytellers, here's your cast for tonight. Woo! So listen, the storyteller is going to go out in the lobby if you want to um, just say something or hang out with them. So we'll see you in a minute. Thank you so much. This audio series is a production of WJCT Public Media and the Florida Theater. 
Untold Stories at the Florida Theater is made possible in part by generous support from the Wolfbrook family. I'm David McGowan. Join us again next Sunday evening at 7 for another edition of Untold Stories.